Inflation ticks stronger and scientists find a rich new resource for lithium, ocean water. Welcome to Kickle Roundtable. I'm your host, Michael McRae. Editor Niels Christensen is in. Hi, Niels. Hello. Happy weekend, everybody. Kickle correspondent Paul Harris. Hi, Paul. Hey. Hi, everyone. And the top trend in mining is the growth of the EV market with copper, nickel, lithium, and cobalt all be pulled higher on anticipated demand. We are going to go downstream to understand the trends better, and we have with us an expert who will guide us. It's Adam Panay with Row Motion. Adam, welcome to Kiko. Hi, thank you very much for having me. What's Row Motion, Adam? Row Motion is a research and consultancy house based in London. We focus on the downstream of the battery and energy transition. So we. Uh, we look at EV demand, we look at ESS demand, and we look at charging networks and how they're developing over time. We're going to hear from you later, Adam, because we really want to understand trends, what are happening in the EV space. Uh, that has been obviously been the biggest story in mining. And then you see a lot of investment in terms of miners anticipating the demand. First, we're going to start with Niels. And inflation may be ticking higher, Niels. Um, it's not May. Inflation is ticking higher. Let's, let's, be, let's be definitive about this. Um, CPI on Thursday. This was this was the report that everybody was ready. This was pretty much the only report that came out uh, this week was uh, U.S. CPI, and uh, it did it did not disappoint. Um, uh, expectations were for annual inflation to rise four point seven percent. It actually came in five uh, percent, um, and we actually saw like you know gold was gold was uh, down on the day. And uh, after that inflation number came out, it just started to tick higher and higher and higher. Uh, by the end of the session, it actually managed to uh, uh, push above uh, back to $1,900 an ounce. We're ending the, the week like it hasn't been sustainable. I mean, that's more technical issues. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, you know, it's, it's hard to be bearish gold when fundamentally we're seeing this inflation threat play out. I mean, you know, is it going to be permanent or transient, the jury's still out. But um, for now, uh, we're dealing with with inflation that we haven't seen since um, uh, 19, uh, uh, 2008. Uh, core inflation, I can't remember what the annual rise was, but uh, biggest rise since 1992. So we're, you know, we're seeing some, some long-term trends in, in inflation play out. And um, gold just looks, fundamentally, gold just looks attractive. Well, let's talk about, uh, you know, I was going to I was going to ask about the World Gold Council, but I think we should go to that first. I believe those were kind of, how would you say uh, those weren't rosy in terms of uh, what uh, what gold was happening? Did those fold in what was happening with inflation or did they not, uh, Niels? They, they did. So I guess because it's, it's all about whether this inflation is is sticky or not. Um, and uh, 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 Society General, it was there was there's their report was really, really interesting. Um, Fitch had, you know, sort of the same, um, same sentiments, but, you know, I read uh, uh, SockGen first, so I'm going to go with them. Um, really interesting report. They still see, you know, potential for gold to hit $2,000 an ounce, but their conviction is weakening. Um, and it's all because of inflation, you know, and, and, and what happens with, you know, does, does inflation go higher and um, that forced the Fed to tighten monetary policy, tapering uh, a lot sooner. I mean, um, another and just to throw out another interesting report, Commerce Bank uh, came out earlier this week and said, you know, forget it. Like, forget about the tapering argument. It's all about interest rates. You know, like the Fed is probably going to taper 
by, you know, the end of this year, you know, or, or announce that they're going to be tapering, which is, you know, sort of the news everybody's waiting for. Um, but the reality is, uh, regardless of what happens with their balance sheet, interest rates are still going to be remain low. Real interest rates are going to remain low. Um, and that's and that's sort of what SoftGen is, is, is looking at. Does, does this rise in inflation bring up uh, uh, nominal yields? Do, do, do nominal yields rise faster than real yields? Um, and that would be uh, uh, bullish or bearish for for gold. So, um, and they just and they 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 basically yeah they're, they're and and next year um, they're actually very bearish. Uh, they see seventeen fifty for gold uh, next year as um, interest rates start to to tighten. So not only will the will the Fed uh, reduce its balance sheet, but you know because of economic growth and you know these inflation pressures. The Fed is going to have to start uh, raising interest rates, and that could come. Um, I think they're thinking the third quarter of next year, so they're fairly bearish on on um, on gold for for 2022. So um, enjoy it while it lasts, I guess is is the message for for gold investors. What did the World Gold Council report? Um, so um, there, I've been actually waiting for this. It was it's their annual uh, central bank gold survey. Um, they, they this is the fourth year that they've done it. They got uh, feedback from fifty six central banks talking about their allocations. Um, this is actually the record. Last year was fifty one uh, central banks responded to them. So this year even even more uh, a new record. Um, and it's just it's it's really interesting. So twenty one percent of central bankers expect to uh, increase their gold reserves this year. Um, no central bank expects to sell any of their gold, um, which was uh, uh, which was less than last year. So 4% of central banks actually said in last year's survey said that they were going to um, sell, reduce their, their gold uh, reserves. Um, this year, no bank said that. Uh, um, and the, and the 21% uh, said that they were going to increase was pretty much on par with, with what happened last year. Um, interestingly, interestingly though, uh, as, as central banks look to, uh, build up their own reserves, they don't necessarily know the, the overall trend. They're, they're not convinced that other central banks are going to, uh, increase their reserves. So, um, Net net, the World Gold Council thinks that central banks will continue to be uh, net buyers of gold through uh, through this year, and we just don't know if if the pace is going to be that extravagant, especially when you compare it to the records that were that were set in in 2018 and then 2019. But overall, this is still uh, an important pillar of support for. Uh, the gold community, so and 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 gold prices, and it's going to remain. We just don't necessarily know the the full impact until until the end of the year. Let's switch to juniors. Paul Justin Reed's Troilus Gold got a thirty five million dollar bot deal to move along his Quebec gold project. The key thing for me that stood out here: it's another very very big raise for a gold junior. Uh, Troilus Gold has the Troilus gold project in the Protet Evans Belt in uh, northern in northern Quebec in Canada. $35 million bought deal uh, to provide funds for continued exploration and feasibility level studies. Um, earlier this year, they acquired Urban Gold Minerals for a $90 million 
dollars, which added 35,000 hectares. It gives them more than 107,000 hectares in that belt. Very commanding position, district play. Um, going to be very aggressive there. Very good to see. Paul, number two diversified miner Rio Tinto has an exploration arm and a hit great at Janus Lake in Saskatchewan. Yes, um, some big copper hits out this week. We intercepted high-grade copper at Rafu's target at Janus Lake, which is a copper silver project in Saskatchewan in Canada, in which it can earn up to an 80% interest. It's a joint venture partner there is Forum Energy Metals. And they returned a, a drill intercept of 14 metres, grading 0.89% copper and 8 grams per tonne silver. Um, and drilling there has tested some 650 metres of strike at Refuse. So a good hit for Rio Tinto. Max Porterfield's uh, Kalanix Mines continues to hit grade with rainbow step outs. Yes, this, this was a biggie. Uh, I think this was perhaps the best copper intercept of the week. Uh, Kalanix Mines reported an intercept of 4.87 metres, grading 14.94% copper. And they also had 0.23 grams per tonne gold and 5.6 grams per tonne silver and a bit of zinc there in a 90 metre step out hole at its rainbow deposit in Manitoba, again, in Canada. Uh, going down south and uh, in your neighbourhood in a company that you're well familiar with, Paul, that's Grand Columbia. Segovia drilling continues to deliver. Yes, some very high grade gold intercepts this week. So Grand Columbia, you know, grade is the best friend of a gold miner, as they say, and it's certainly been the, the best friend friend for Grand Columbia Gold over the years at its Segovia operation in Antioquia in Colombia. Um, so as its financial position has strengthened over the years, it's been able to spend more and more on exploration and it's certainly getting um, the benefit from that investment. So this week it reported highlights including 30 centimeters, 33 centimeters grading 211.68 grams per tonne gold and a similar amount of silver and its Providencia mine and similar results at its Sandra K and El Silencio mines. Um, those intercepts may scout, sound skinny to some, but from that mine, the company was able to produce 196,000 ounces of gold last year, more than replacing its depletion rate while also maintaining its measured and indicated grades above 11 grams per tonne. I think uh, Segovia was the second highest grade producing mine last year at a worldwide level. And Calibre hits uh, new gold areas at near its Libertad mill. Yes, uh, not too far away in Nicaragua, Calibra Mining reported uh, intercepts within 10 kilometers of its La Libertad mill. Highlights on the Tranca vein there included 4.4 meters, grading 13.83 grams per ton. Um, Calibra has guided production this year of 170 to 180,000 ounces a year. So finding high grade very close to its mill is uh, very good news indeed for them. I wanted to ease into our conversation with Adam Panay by uh, highlighting some energy transition stories. Uh, Siemens said it's about to build an offshore wind to hydrogen prototype, which is due in the next five years, followed by an industrial scale wind plant shortly thereafter. Siemens is forecasting that demand for hydrogen is expected to increase by 7% per year until 2050. The company published a white paper this week. And Adam, miners are electrifying too. Sandvik expects that the market for battery electric underground mining equipment to hit higher gear in two to three years as mining companies attempt to lower emissions and cut costs. That, according to Reuters, Sandvik said it would be selling more electric-powered equipment and internal combustion engines. And the top news story of the week was researchers believe they can extract lithium from seawater. 
Researchers from the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology said they have developed an economically viable system that can extract high purity lithium from seawater. Uh, in the past, they were thinking that the concentrations were in too low a level, but uh, of course, seawater being very rich in lithium. The trick, the researchers said, was an electrochemical cell containing uh, a ceramic membrane made from lithium and titanium oxide. Uh, Paul. Yeah, I, I saw this and it did pique my curiosity. And it reminded me of the stories a long time ago of the, the people looking at the possibility of extracting gold from seawater. And uh, obviously <laughs> that never proved economic. So uh, interesting to see how this develops and whether that can actually become viable or not. Uh, if you can put together a mining company that can extract both gold and lithium from seawater, I think you would be onto something there. Of course, uh, lithium miners have been on a tear. Uh, lithium giant uh, Albemarle uh, doubled in the past year. Adam? Just to say on that on that seawater piece, that it's not a particularly new idea. There's, there's been knocking about probably for about a decade, if not longer. The issue is making it economic uh, against very low cost operations in, in South America, uh, extracting from brine, or from the hard rock uh, deposits in, in Western Australia. So yeah, I, that story could, could, could have legs, but it's not the first dawn on, on, on seawater mining for lithium at all. Hmm. I wonder though, with uh, more developments uh, with uh, desalination plants, so that that would be something that would be more viable because you would see a lot of um, your, you're necessarily going to see a lot of uh, you're necessarily going to see a lot of investment into that area because of the just the need to find new water resources as we warm up. Uh, Paul, I, I think another interesting aspect to that is uh, where the research was done. Um, I think you said it's Saudi Arabia or somewhere in the Middle East, and you perhaps would expect that to come out of Australia or Chile or, or even Canada. That kind yeah. of uh, research. So, uh, you know, very interesting that um, and that part of the world is looking at this kind of technology. Makes sense, though, if it's in um, if it's in Saudi Arabia, I believe that uh, Israel is one of the world leaders in desalination plants uh, just uh, for the needs to uh, actually have uh, water resources. Uh, Adam. So just to come back in on that, I mean, if if it's a, effectively a byproduct of a desalination process, then potentially you get to an economic level there because your the cost is accounted for elsewhere. That, I mean, that, that would be the only way that you could get to currently get to a, a, an economic product from, from seawater. Adam, uh, Adam is uh, Adam Panay is with uh, Row Motion, and they are an electric vehicle consultancy. Uh, Adam, I'm glad that I have you on the podcast um, I, because we really want to understand what is the biggest story in mining these days, and that is talking about uh, the transition from the internal combustion engine uh, to electric vehicles. Uh, I think I think a number. You know, we always see these projection numbers out, uh, but maybe you can help us with the latest. Would you have a guess by 2030 how many electric vehicles are going to be sold and how many internal combustion engines are going to be sold? By 2030, we have the penetration rate for BEV and PHEVs, that's plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, at about 30 percent, just over in fact 31 percent. They're saying that equates to roughly 34 million vehicles according to our calculations. Um, the, the way to think about that as well from our side is that there's not really a constraint on the demand at all. The constraint is all on the supply side. So one of the key uh, sense checks that we do at the end of our forecast is to look at, will the sales supply be there? And can, can the raw material supply be there to make the sales as well? So not least also, uh, we look at the EV plants where the vehicle's being made and see the capacity there as well. So 34 million, 35 million seems like a reasonable number that can be produced. 
the demand we think is there, you know, not quite already, but th- th- there's virtually no constraint on the demand as, as the vehicles improve. I saw a question from Niels, but uh, just to follow up on that, uh, Adam, it's, uh, correct me, uh, that number, that uh, projection number seems to be ticking up all the time. Is there just a reason why? What uh, what's Is it just been a greater consumer adoption? Has there been just better government regulation? What's happening? It's, it's really not on the legislation piece, but from our point of view, we, we, haven't, we have pushed that number up ourselves, and that is really around OEM's plans. Um, and, and what they're saying they're going to be able to do by, by a given date, so 2030 in this case. Um, in the last quarter, so we do our, our, our outlook on a quarterly basis, and, and in the last quarter, uh, leading up to our Q2 uh, report, we were, you know, we were seeing very, very bullish announcements by OEMs. And the thing is, we will always then check, well, are those announcements realistic? Can those vehicles be produced? And, and the level of investment going into both the, the civil manufacturing um, and, and also the vehicle manufacturing suggests that those vehicles can be pr- produced at that level. Where the constraint still remains is probably of interest to your audience, which is at the raw material level, but not even that really at the chemical processing level, because all of those raw materials, be it lithium, cobalt, uh, to a lesser extent graphite, but they, they all have to be processed typically for a chemical process. Um, and, and all of that is virtually in China at the moment for, for many of those commodities. So. We have to um, have to look at that piece and think about where where the supply constraints are there. Niels, um, I wanted to ask you know like obviously demand is there uh, like you say uh, supply constraints, but I'm wondering infrastructure as well. I mean, you know everybody sort of talks about you know the need to to upgrade the grid and and that's going to be sort of even more bullish for all of these metals um, for the you know, but I'm just I'm sort of wondering. I mean, do, does the does the grid can the grid support all of these uh, new d- new demands? Yeah, I think if the way to think about this in terms of the infrastructure piece is that battery technology, particularly in the West, is less true in, in China, and I'll come to why in a moment, it, it is well-placed for early adoption because a lot of the charging can happen at home. And at these sorts of numbers we're talking about in the next five, 10 years, I don't really see that there's an enormous issue with the grid. What we do see, there will need to be some capacity restructuring and so on. There's going to be a big uh, opportunity for copper there, I would say, as a result of that. Um, but the reason I say that the the battery technology is well placed in, in, in terms of early adoption uh, times without a massive increase in the charging infrastructure is because the types of people buying them currently in the West, and you can see this through the, through the data about where they're being sold and, and the types of vehicles being sold, they tend to be people that it's more of a suburban market and there's people charging at home. Now, China is the exception to that. Uh, and it's you know, currently the biggest market alongside the EU. Um, because again, if you look at the types of vehicles being sold and where they're being sold, it's necessitated a big in, in, investment in the charging infrastructure. I know that's slightly different from the grid infrastructure, but it sort of speaks to the same thing in some respects um, from the commodity demand point of view. Uh, and that's because most people don't have access to private charging there because it's a much more urban market. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll give you two extreme examples here. So Norway, which is the highest, uh, uh, the biggest market in terms of overall penetration of the internal combustion engine vehicle market, it's over 60% of the penetration there now of BEV and PHEV, which is incredible. And then if you hold that in your mind, and then China, which is the biggest market by volume in terms of vehicles on the road, Norway has a ratio of EVs to public charging infrastructure of uh, one charger to every 26 EVs or thereabouts 
in China it's one to five. Both markets function perfectly well because demographics matter so much in terms of the rollout of the charging infrastructure. Now, what that means for the grid, it, it, it does matter because the public charging infrastructure is generally going to be much faster in terms of delivery uh, of kilowatts to the vehicle than private charging. And that, that's where you start to get these demand charge issues at the, at the, um, at the, at the forecourts. And that's where you're going to need batteries to come in and regulate some of that, that charge. But that's a, that's a whole story of itself. Adam, you had a stunning number in your presentation, and that was the sales to production ratio. Uh, the U.S. is uh, favored uh, 1.2. Uh, that means uh, that they're producing more versus in terms of uh, sales. Uh, Europe lags, on the other hand, at 0.78, uh, and that's uh, that's uh, that means that uh, they're importing or bringing in more cars than they're actually producing. That number is going to change shortly, though, with uh, Giga Berlin coming online. I. I is Tesla, you know, that's, uh, and that, of course, is a factory that's being built by Tesla. Is Tesla really a monster in this industry? Uh, currently, yes. And one one of the things that we've been saying, it's basically been Tesla and the Chinese until yeah. the last couple of years. So uh, other other uh, operators that are an equivalent size, not quite as big, BYD is in China, as big one. Geely has a lot of assets and, and they're moving forward with some really interesting vehicles. But our view is that uh, the incumbent OEMs, so your Volkswagens and uh, uh, less so your Toyota, but definitely your Volkswagen, Daimler, Ford pushing and GM pushing forward with very, very big electrification plans. Be interesting how it washes out with Tesla uh, versus those in the future, because they are well ahead at the moment. But um, obviously you have the resources and, and the, you know, you're talking about Volkswagen Group selling nearly 10 million vehicles a year. If, the, if you know a portion of that goes over to electric, then then that becomes a much bigger electric vehicle company than potentially Tesla can reach. Although Tesla is saying at their battery day last year, or, or, or um, yeah, it was only last year, they were saying that uh, a total uh, terawatt hour number for their demand, which was the equivalent, we worked out something like 20 million vehicles, which would make them the biggest OEM in the world uh, by an order of magnitude of 100%. So uh, given that it would be twice VW's output. so. It really does depend how quickly they can ramp, uh, whether they all stay ahead of the incumbent OEMs for the foreseeable future. Paul? I, I wonder if this kind of thing will provoke um, other sort of innovative business combinations or, or joint ventures. I mean, your point about the forecourts and people have to go uh, in certain areas will have to go to, you know, the, the petrol station, the gas station, or what that evolves into. And so potentially you could see companies like, I don't know, Starbucks or Tim Hortons getting into that business or being a joint venture partner in that business because um, going to the, the gas station to plug in and having 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes to kill is going to be a lot more pleasant if you can sit down and have your Starbucks experience or your Tim Hortons experience um, at the same time. Yeah, I fully agree. I mean, destination charging is going to be a big issue here because really you've got, you've got two issues playing out here. At the vehicle level, with the exception of um, the Porsche Taycan, and there's, there's some other vehicles coming out, the Ionic 5 and the EV6 coming from Kia, all the other vehicles for the most part are built on a, on a, on a 400 volt architecture. And that, allowed, that limits the rate at which they can charge uh, alongside some of the issues with the battery as well and the, dip, uh, uh, the shortening of the lifespan at very, very high charge rates for, for batteries. So for the most part, destination charging will be a big part of this market because it just makes sense. You can go to a supermarket, you can plug in your car, you'll be in that supermarket for 
30 minutes, 45 minutes, and you come back out. It serves both you and the supermarket because they capture your business on that level as well. Same for, uh, for other retail and um, um, leisure activities as well, cinemas and so forth. So there's, I, I absolutely think that's the case. And we're seeing more and more inquiries in our charging business around that destination charging piece. So, okay, what technologies do you put in there? What speeds do you need to hit in terms of charging delivery that are going to open you up to the most amount of vehicles and, and optimise the time spent in that car park while that person is spending money in your, in your facility? So that I definitely think that's part of it. There was a great story from, um, I believe it was from The Verge. Uh, they got a loaner uh, electric vehicle. It was not from Tesla, but uh, one of their experiences was uh, trying to charge it uh, when they were taking it back. And uh, just the dearth of uh, actual charging stations in America and where they actually were given a place to go and um, uh, their description of where they were uh, forced to actually do a charge and then uh, spend a long time there. It was um, it was a pretty miserable spot. And then also giving the spot that it was uh, kind of remote and uh, it wasn't um, it wasn't the nicest place of uh, the eastern seaboard. Um, they were not enjoying spending their time there. Paul, <clears throat> the, the Top Gear TV show did a, a great uh, segment on that a few years ago, where they you know had a, an EV and they were trying to charge it somewhere and they ended up you know parking up people's houses sticking cables through their windows, all sorts of things. Niels. I was just going to say, there's actually a, uh, a chicken franchise in Quebec, uh, Saint-Hubert. They actually have done this model. They There's some of their stores actually have charging stations um, or their restaurants have charging stations. So you go in, have a meal charge. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's definitely happening. It's, but I, I wanted to ask Adam, actually, uh, you know, you mentioned like, um, uh, Volkswagen and, uh, you know, some of these other companies, you know, sort of breaking out into the market and, you know, what does that look for the mining side? I mean, we actually already see a lot of companies like go directly to miners for supply. Is this like, what, what kind of competition is, is this going to add to the, the, this market now? Like, I mean, are we going to like, is there going to be absolutely no more middlemen anymore? It's going to be literally, Ford going to miners to to get supply and, and Volkswagen going to their mines to get supply. Just uh, before you answer, Adam, yes, uh, Niels, you um, you uh, you uh, you leaped on my question. I was going to ask Adam. I was just to expand on that. Uh, you had uh, the announcement uh, by VW uh, that was getting quite concerned about uh, its material prices and uh, was uh, looking at. Um, how would you say getting more involved with the mining process? And then there was also Tesla. And I believe it was a year ago on their battery day, they were uh, making some strong suggestions on how you should do uh, mineral processing. Uh, so uh, Adam, uh, what are you seeing in terms of uh, the automakers to follow on Neil's question? Uh, yeah. What do you see in terms of uh, the automakers uh, getting into the mining business? I think it's inevitable for the larger ones because frankly, the if you take the same lithium industry, but this is also true probably of the graphite business, um, less true, true of the manganese, to some extent true of the nickel business because it's just so much bigger anyway, uh, and to some extent true of the cobalt business, but we can get into that maybe in more detail later. But let's just take lithium. That's a, effectively a, 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 a mining sector that's having to be built almost from scratch because obviously it existed before the glass and ceramics and so on, but it's an order of magnitude growth that we're talking about here. And you're going to need continual investment in that in that um, market almost for the next two decades, frankly, in order to keep keep it uh, at pace with the growth of EVs and other battery technologies. Um, so what OEMs are faced with is that they have made multi-billion dollar investments in the downstream, so in their 
rebuilding re their facilities to produce these vehicles, retraining staff. Uh, they are on the hook for multiple billion dollars of fines if they don't uh, reduce their CO2, uh, average CO2 emissions, particularly in Europe. And there's this inconvenient fact of the, the, all the materials that need to go into the technology that's going to produce those vehicles. So uh, it's an inevitability that they will uh, get involved in that space directly. What is interesting, though, at least at, at the present time, is that they are doing that effectively on behalf of their suppliers. So no OEM is effectively, even Tesla is not making its own battery cells. They're made by Panasonic uh, in, in the US. Right, it, effectively, it's an integrated production, but you know, at least on paper, it, it, those cells are made by Panasonic. So they're going to the market in the raw material market, securing supplies for their cathode manufacturers and their, their anode manufacturers, and, and by dint of that, their cell manufacturers, in order to, 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 um, to secure the cell supply at, at the point that they use it. Begs the question then, at what point do OEMs move into the cell manufacturing business? At the moment, at the moment, I'd say that they have too much on their plate in terms of trying to get these vehicle lineups settled, move into these new platforms that they're bringing through, the MEV platforms, for example, for, for VW. And uh, I'd say it's not a priority, but what we understand is that virtually every major OEM has now developed a center of excellence for battery technology, moving forward with that then it's just a case of deploying capital to make those facilities work. So, you know, I think towards the end of the decade, we might start to hear about integrated cell supply from OEMs to their, to their vehicles. How come uh, Tesla has still got that uh, relationship? I believe it was with Panasonic uh, in terms, I, I thought that would have been like an area that they really would have kind of taken over. Was uh, that just have to do with the fact of, um, I would say it's, it's just, it's just too big a piece to uh, take over Adam, or is it uh, they've just got too much intellectual property? I believe that's from Panasonic producing the cells in the gigafactories. I think I think it's a bit of both. It's certainly an intellectual property facet to it because that NCA technology they're using, the nickel cobalt aluminium oxide technology they're using, the cathode material for that comes from Japan, um, and it's, there's a fairly direct relationship with almost I think it's one exclusive. Uh, cathode active material supplier there. So there, there is an intellectual uh, property component to it, but then also um, there is also a function of the fact that it's working, I guess, and that relationship is working. And then, uh, so why, why change it yet? The, the, the other thing to bear in mind is that in other parts of the world, Tesla are working with other cell suppliers. So in China, they're working with LG Chem for their NCM811 cells, so that high nickel cell that's equivalent to the NCA1. And then they're working with CATL, big Chinese manufacturer, for uh, their LFP uh, for the standard range models out in China, which is actually for the Model Three is is the main is the main selling option actually the LFP version. Niels, um, I wanted to ask, like I've I've never I've never necessarily believed the the uh, EV vehicle story, but I'm definitely there's a lot more evidence and, and I'm changing my mind and I'm, but I'm sort of wondering, I mean, do you think there's anything disruptive coming for the battery market? Like is, is lithium and, and nickel it? I mean, are there other metals that could be playing a role? Um, like I've heard like a, a copper based battery or, or something like that. Like, I mean, what, you know, like as this evolves, what's the, the disruptive elements look like? Please mention zinc too, Adam. <laughs> zinc, yes. We always hear about uh, zinc batteries and uh, we've, uh, we have some juniors who love to hear about it. You need to almost zoom out a little bit 
from the EV market to the battery market more generally to start including some of these more uh, tangential uh, chemistries. I'd say for the EV market, it's really a three horse race on the cathode side. You have to sort of se separate it somewhat between LFP, uh, nickel manganese, so that's high manganese uh, batteries, which VW have been talking about at their power day um, not so long ago, and then nickel cobalt manganese batteries. And then the, the GM one, which is a nickel cobalt manganese aluminium oxide battery, which is a very, very similar chemistry. So it's, it's splitting hairs somewhat talking about the difference there. But um, so and I, I don't really see disruption on the cathode side in the EV space because the level of investment that's gone into uh, developing the platforms around that technology and also at the cell supply level is, is enormous. And, you know, all of that investment needs to be depreciated. Most of it's not even built yet, but the money's going into it. So that, that puts you a decade down the, the track before you start shifting over. Where there is the potential for change, and we're seeing it already, or we're seeing the roots of it already, is on the anode side. So just to 101 on that, anodes really come from either synthetic graphite, which is a byproduct of needle coke, or they come from natural flake graphite, which is a mined material. Uh, and, and natural flake graphite is effectively the newcomer there. And it's come into the market really because of a, a paucity of the synthetic material. So that, that's really where anodes are at, at the moment. Something like the Tesla, uh, or most of the Tesla models have some dosing of silicon oxide in there as well. Um, and uh, that increases the energy density somewhat. The disruptive technologies coming down the piece for that are around silicon dominant anodes. And also then, it used to be later, but actually it's probably going to be about the same time now, is, is solid state. And solid state is a, effectively, in the, in the iteration that QuantumScape, who are one of the bigger names in that space, are uh, pushing forward with, is effectively an anode three um, uh, technology. So you have a solid electrolyte, but then the, uh, the, the uh, anode is effectively lithium metal, which will be captured from the cathode during the charging and discharging process. So um, that is really where the disruptive te uh, technologies are. On the anode side and it really doesn't affect your nickels your cobalt your, your manganeses or your lithiums really if anything it's a good news solid state is a good news story for the lithium uh, depending on how it gets played out adam this is really interesting i love this discussion um i think we should uh close it up though um i just want to uh, end it uh talking about our uh, platinum group uh, element friends here uh obviously uh platinum uh, rhodium palladium have had a huge run in the last decade uh, with the uh, tightening of emission standards uh, you hear from uh, people in that industry saying that uh, there is going to be revival uh, with the uh, the coming of fuel cell electric vehicles, and you're obviously going to need the platinum for uh, providing the uh, catalysts for that uh, when you're doing separation. Uh, and they're also saying that uh, just given the dynamics and the physics, uh, say, of like long haul truck vehicles, you are going to look towards doing fuel cell um, uh, solutions to that. You also see some people in the mining industry, the big haul trucks are actually doing fuel cell it just works better in terms of the infrastructure that is there. On the other side, uh, what you're seeing are other people that are you know, uh, less bullish on it. Uh, they're talking about uh, that there's just so much forward momentum that is happening right now in the electric vehicle and the battery space. It's just going to be very hard for fuel cell electrics to uh, catch up, just have the infrastructure that is out there, never mind in terms of uh, just actually being able to have vehicles that are going to be as uh, advanced or, uh, you know, as far ahead as what's happening in batteries. Uh, Adam, what's your thoughts? So on, on, on the heavy duty side, especially for long haul, the battery story sort of breaks down somewhat, and that's around energy density. You, you simply can't move 
you know, they, you can't you can't move a full payload 400 miles with a battery, or at least that's our reckoning, at least based on the physics of it. So that does lead you into fuel cell, really, which is the only other technology which is effectively zero carbon and also zero emission. Because some people talk about fuel cell, uh, excuse me, hydrogen combustion in, in, in vehicles, but really fuel cells is where it's at if you're going to decarbonize the long haul sector. It, the energy density there is still not really comparable to diesel. So there is still an issue around refilling there, but at least with commercial, long haul commercial transport, you can just build out an infrastructure along major arteries and uh, that, that really uh, shouldn't be prohibitive in terms of uh, capital expense for the, the refilling infrastructure. And also given that labor is such a big part of the total cost of ownership uh, calculation for uh, freight, uh, having a lower downtime for refilling with hydrogen does make it more attractive on that level versus having a very long charging period for, for electric trucks. So uh, the long and short of that, in terms of where that leaves platinum, platinum group metals, I wouldn't want to guess at a supply demand balance versus where they are now supplying into the passenger car market. Uh, but it does offer a certain opportunity within the fuel cell piece. The other part as well is that there's a technology called lithium sulfur, which probably would end up finding itself into the the, the heavy duty side of things rather than the passenger car side of things, where there's potential for the catalyst for that battery to have uh, platinum, platinum group metals within it as well. So it's probably going to be quite niche, but that, that is a, a, another another piece of it. And the final thing as well is that don't overestimate the, the rate of change here as well, because we're talking about 30% of new vehicles sold, roughly speaking, uh, battery electric or plug-in hybrid electric. And the plug-in hybrid electric vehicles still have a good internal combustion engine in them as well. And that's in 2030. So you've still got a good decade and then into the 2030s as well, where this is winding down. So, you know, the transition is going to take a while. Yeah, obviously with, uh, you know, with the uh, turnover on those uh, vehicles, because those are long lived assets. Let's turn to our number of the week. Adam, we always start with a guest. What's your number? It's actually 800. And it's not directly to relate to this week, but it's something that we've been talking about, about a lot internally this week. And the it relates to 800 volts and the move from 400 volt platforms to 800 volt platforms. And I mentioned it earlier, uh, you have the potential to charge much faster on those 800 volt platforms. Uh, both the Hyundai uh, uh, 5 that I mentioned earlier and the, the Kia EV6 will be on that platform. The Porsche Taycan is currently as well. Um, the other point from a mining point of view is that it enables you to significantly reduce the uh, copper in a vehicle. Uh, because uh, because of the voltage that you're running at. So you're, that has implications from an EV point of view on weight, obviously, and weight is money in an EV, given how heavy the battery is, uh, and also less raw material going into the vehicle. But ultimately, electrification of anything is good news for copper. So I'm not, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not bearish on copper at all, but that is one, uh, one aspect that is worth bearing in mind. The, the, the likelihood is that the, Cabling harness, copper content will go down over time. Niels, what's your number? Um, so I kind of got two. Um, and this is why, like, uh, last week I said, you know, gold was in the sweet spot. Um, high inflation and low interest rates. Um, and this is why interest rates are not going up. Um, 3%. Uh, so this comes from uh, peak capital management. If interest rates were to rise 3%, so to, to some sort of normalization, um, the debt servicing f- 
for uh, U.S. government debt would go from uh, $330 billion to $975 billion. So um, if we saw a normalization of, of interest rates, uh, the, the amount of money that the government would have to pay just to service its debt would eclipse uh, all other spending, in, including um, uh, spending on uh, defense, which is the, the biggest part of their budget. So it, this, is, this is why I think um, we're going to see interest rates remain low for uh, a very long time because we just we can't afford um, to have interest rates go up. In, in in this current environment. We swung from uh, volts uh, to interest rates. Uh, Paul, what number have you got for us? Um, I think mine is somehow related to, or relate, yeah, related to what Neil said. Mine is $8 trillion. And that's $8 trillion. The US Federal Reserve's balance sheet topped $8 trillion for the first time ever this week, according to the Central Bank. It just goes from record to record. It's just, it's incredible how, how this balance sheet is, is growing. And, and we're talking about tapering. Like, it's just, you know, like even if it goes, even if they do start to taper, um, it just grows at, at a slower pace. And, you know, even if they started to reduce it, what they go from 8 trillion down to seven and a half, six trillion, seven and a half trillion. Like, you know, like what's like, th- these numbers are just so astronomical that, they just, you can't even comprehend them, you know, drops and drops in the ocean. I have a date and it's actually a very important battery materials date. Uh, that is December 12th, 2021. Once again, that's December 12th, 2021. That's a date for New Caledonia's independence referendum. Will the Pacific Island go it alone or standard France? New Caledonia currently produces around 8%. That's 8% of global mined nickel. And the rest of the run further adds to the election-related risk for mining supply this year. And of course, when they had uh, the past referendum, uh, that did result in some geopolitical protests and tensions on that island. That, according from a note from BMO. That's it from us. Reach out to us. You can follow me at Michael McRae. That's uh, McRae with two Cs. Niels is at Niels underscore C. Paul is at CGS 2021 Gold, CGS 2021 Gold. And Adam, how would you like people to get a hold of you? On Twitter, we're at Remotion. On LinkedIn, we're Remotion. And then you can go through the company direct to info at Remotion.com as well. And Remotion is spelled R-H-O-M-O-T-I-O-N. So that's R-H-O Motion, R-H-O Motion. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend and don't forget to subscribe. Adam, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. This has been Kick Around Table on behalf of Paul Harris, Niels Christensen, and Adam Panay. Have a good weekend.